Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me. I'm Howard Parker. In 1975, in the midst of a contemporary and progressive bluegrass music boom, two teenagers in the Washington, D.C. suburbs, Dudley Cannell and Ron Welch, formed the Johnson Boys, a bluegrass duo. By 1978, the band was a five-piece and became the Johnson Mountain Boys when adding Franny Davidson, Eddie Dizamura, David McLaughlin, and Gary Reed. Over the following two decades, the Johnson Mountain Boys, or JMB as affectionately known, led a resurgence in the classic style of bluegrass. They did it with original material and songs brought in from other genres, notably the country music honky-tonk period. Leaving the road in 1988, only to reboot a year later, the Johnson Mountain Boys continued to drive the bluegrass tradition hard, until eventually disbanding in 1996. JMB leaves behind an incredible music legacy, including 10 albums. The band frequently received awards from the International Bluegrass Music Association and Society for Preservation of Bluegrass in America, plus two Grammy nominations. We celebrate the 2020 induction of all Johnson Mountain Boys into the IBMA Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame with a recollection by co-founder Dudley Cannell as he tells the story to Katie Daly. Well, I'm still kind of pitching myself over Katie because, you know, I mean, I, well, I know this isn't true, but I still think of myself as a relatively young man with a lot of people that have done more and had longer careers than I have. I just, I find it humbling and flattering and, and I'm very, very, on, feel very, very honored. And so how did they notify, did they notify each one of you or how did that work? Well, I don't know if I was the first or not, but they they did they did call me, and and and, and I missed the call, and it was like guy called, and and so I I, I went I, I was in the shower, and the call came in again, and I and I had a just an outside. Why would the IBMA be calling me? So I got out of the shower, and I received the news dripping wet. <laughs> That's the way that went down. And I, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things, you know, I never really thought of the, of, you know, cause we, when the JMB started and like the, you know, mid seventies, I was just a kid and I was, and I was drinking in all the bluegrass I could. And, and like I've, like you and I've discussed and, and in previous interviews, I was, it wasn't just the music that I loved. I was fascinated by the whole culture around it. And I just set it upon myself. I, I, that was, that was my, that was me going to college was to try to learn about the, the, the culture and where the music came from and how it developed. And that was, that was my schooling. And I've, and I've been infatuated with it ever since. And so who, in what individuals or what groups did you look to for your inspiration? Oh, there's, there's no question about it, uh, uh, um, Katie. Uh, well, uh, well, no, I get, I get, no, that's a fair question. Let, let, me, let me dig a little deeper in the well. The first groups that I were from, was familiar with were the Washington, D.C. groups, Seldom Seen and, and the Country Gentlemen. Those were the groups 
that I first heard live outside of uh, you know uh, you know little barroom bands and things like that. So I you know that was my 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 first inspiration. But my my real inspiration was when I discovered the Stanley Brothers, and I thought, oh my God, this is this is this is rock and roll soul and blues soul all wrapped into a bluegrass package, and that's mm-hmm. what really. That's when I decided, geez, I don't think I can do anything with this. And I and it really became such a passion for me that nothing else really mattered to me anymore after after I got got that bug, after that bug bit me. And and so uh and and here I am fifty years later, still knocking around with it as best I can. Right. Well, how about your parents? Were they uh did they give you the blessing on this or what? They totally did. My my parents, when I was a little kid, they they listened to mainly country music from WDON, which was an AM station in Wheaton, Maryland. And actually, Gary Henderson worked there at, at one time. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so they would play a little bit of bluegrass when they thought they could get away with it. But my parents had a record collection and scattered amongst the Ray Price and Webb Pierce records were records by Reno and Smiley and the Stanley Brothers. And I don't remember any other bluegrass artists beside those two. They didn't have Bill Monroe. They didn't have Jimmy Martin. But they had Reno and Smiley and the Stanley Brothers. And I liked it. I mean, I, I, to me, it, it, it felt like getting wrapped in a warm blanket. And, and I enjoyed it. But it wasn't until I became, you know, in my mid-teens, that I really, be, where it really became all I thought about. I'm a, okay, so I, I know you were playing with some friends and playing, you know, around the area and stuff, but at what point did the Johnson Mountain Boys come together and how did you all select each other to, and to form a band? Well, I had a girlfriend and her name was, uh, was uh, Mosey Welch. I think her real name was Maureen. But she had a brother named Ron, and he was learning to play guitar about the same time I was learning to play banjo. And so we started going around to all these, uh, like, open mics. And, and at the time, in the D.C. area, you could go, you, well, if you're willing to play for free, you could play every night of the week. So we would go to every one of these open mics that we could, and and uh, you know, and thinking back about it now, it was it was not a stupid idea because as we went around playing these open mics, we found musicians with similar tastes. They were interested in you know playing that old timey raw kind of bluegrass, and so you know that's how the band actually got started. And you know, we get a gig here and there for you know a hundred bucks or something like that, and we thought we were. You know, we thought we were like living large because we were getting paid to do something that we loved to do that we would have done for free. Don't tell anybody, but that's the mm-hmm. way it really was. And uh, and so I, and I was I became I'll be honest with you personally I became kind of difficult to be around because it was all I wanted to do. I had no other interest. I was driven, and Ron finally said, "You know, uh, this is too much for me," and 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 he quit. So here I was, a teenager with a banjo, and and uh, luckily for and, me, and there was a... Go ahead, Katie. And didn't Valley Kane give you some advice about that banjo? I was just going to tell you about that. 
So there was this place called Shakey's Pizza, and they had bluegrass once a week, and it was right down the street from where I lived. So I would go down and see them every week, and, and sometimes they would get me up on stage and sometimes not. But I became friendly with them. In fact, we bought our first PA system from Benny and Valley King. And they were kind of an institution in, in Washington. And I went to Katie after Ron had, had left, and I, and I was, I was kind of, you know, on my pity pot. Oh, woe is me. What am I going to do? And she said, well, I, she, she gave me some sage advice. She said, well, you know, to tell you the truth, you could, you're a pretty good singer, but your banjo plants not so much. She said, if I were you, I would concentrate on playing guitar and becoming a singer and then, and then see where that takes you. And, and at the time, it hurt my feelings just a little bit, but she was dead on right. I wasn't much of a banjo player anyway. But, uh, yeah, so uh, I did. I started to concentrate on playing guitar and developing my voice. And, and, and I, got, I got more and more serious about that. And, and, and when I had, after that, you know, I, I could start choosing musicians. And I was really lucky that, I, well, I was at a picking party, and I met uh, Francis Davidson, Franny Davidson. And he and I became roommates, and he played banjo. And Eddie Desmira, who was the first mandolin player, he and I went to high school together. And so he joined the band. And then Gary Reed, who I met at the Music Box, which was a record store in Langley Park, I met him, and we went out and bought him a bass and said, here, you play this. <laughs> and that's, that's how the, the whole thing got started, really. And then um, somebody told me, uh, you know, we'd, we'd gone through a couple of fiddle players, and Somebody told me, you need to go to the Montgomery County Fair and see this young kid, Eddie Stubbs, who was playing with uh, the Buzz Buzz Brothers. It was Wayne mm -hmm. and Buzz. And Wayne was my junior high school principal. And he actually kicked, kicked me out of school once for kissing my girlfriend, Stephanie, in the hallway. But we probably don't need to go there. <laughs> but Wayne and I ended up becoming friends. And, and, and he introduced me to Eddie and Buzz, his brother, and, and Eddie just, I mean, as far as, as far as I was concerned, his fiddling was good, but his look just totally fit the part of what I was looking for. You know, so what was he wearing? Lean, huh? So what was he wearing? Okay. Was well, that the look? What was he wearing? He had a cowboy hat and a string tie and he was twisting all around like Scotty Stolman, and, and, you know, I mean, it was just like, oh, my God, there it is. That's, that's, that, that's what we need right there. And, and, and uh, David McLaughlin, who was the, actually the original fiddle player, had gone off to college. And, and so we were, and look, we were actually looking for, uh, you know, somebody could, that could be, you know, like a permanent fiddler. And in the meantime, we'd worked with Bill Belford, who we met through Benny and Valley Kane. We worked with Carl Nelson, who we met through Bill Harrell, and just to, just to fill the fiddle spot. But when we saw Eddie, or when I saw Eddie, I thought, well, there's what there's what we need. That's that's the look and the sound that would fit, you know, a a a, a, a real hardcore traditional band. He had the drive, he had the enthusiasm, he had the showmanship. So he and I became friends that night, and his dad would bring him out to the Red Fox Inn where we had a semi-regular gig. 
like twice a month or something like that. And Eddie would come out, and he'd play like a set with us. And then his dad would say, well, I better get Eddie home. He's got to go to school tomorrow. He was still in high school at the time. And Eddie would come to me on the side and, you know, tug at my sleeve and said, would you see if my dad will let me play another set? So I'd go over to Larry, who was his dad. Say, Larry, uh, I could, I'd be happy to drive Eddie home. Do you mind if he plays another set? And his dad would be, gee, damn it. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> but nine <laughs> times out of ten, he'd let Eddie stay and play another set with us. And then I'd bring him home after the show. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we've been, we were together so much for so long. I mean, you know, at the time, at the time, this would have been like, I guess, late, late 70s, very early 80s. You know, it was, it was really hard to, to make a living playing bluegrass. So the only way that we could do it was to, was to play cheap and play often. And I think I quit my job in 1980 from the Montgomery County School Board. I had a maintenance job there and, and decided that, you know, I, I'd missed so much work from staying up late playing music that I had to make a decision. And I decided that I wanted to play music for my livelihood, or at least at least give it a shot to say I tried. Right. Okay, so at this point, it's it's you and Eddie, and and who else going Eddie out on these? In, okay, and so yeah, this is where did the name? Where did you get the name? I mean, at those times, oh. it was obligatory to have Mountain Boys in your name. But where's the Johnson? Where's the Johnson Mountain Boys come from? Okay, it came from my dad. My dad had a my dad played uh, banjo and guitar, and he had this real good friend named Don Myers that they basically grew up together, and he played fiddle. And my my grandfather on my father's side would take them to these little bars up around Seneca, Maryland, and and uh, you know up and down River Road and down that way. And and what he would do is he'd take them in there, and 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 he he liked to drink a bit, and he'd take them in there, and he'd say, "Now you boys pretend like you don't know me, and 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 you play, and then I'll pass the hat. And since they don't, I don't want them to know that you're associated with me. You call yourself the Johnson Boys. If anybody asks you who you are, tell them you're the Johnson Boys. So he would he would pass the hat." But he wouldn't give the boys any money. He he would spend it on on liquor for himself. So that's <laughs> right. that's that, that, that's how the Johnson boys came about. And then at some point, I just thought, well, like like you said, Katie, it's it's like Mountain Boys was the thing, Clutch Mountain Boys, the Foggy Mountain Boys, and you know the list goes on and on. So I that's uh, that I just stuck Mountain in there just to, just so we'd have a name, and it just sort of stuck with us. Mhm. The JMB. All right. So you're playing the you're playing these cheap gigs, lots of them. How else did the band evolve? You all went out. Did you go out shopping together, or how the outfits come about? Oh my God. You know, honestly, now you're testing my memory. I don't remember. I guess we did. You know, we went to, uh, there was a place on Wisconsin Avenue in D.C. called Count's Western Wear. And oh, my initially, goodness. You remember that? Oh, yes. Yeah, so initially, we would go there and buy hats and ties 
and shirts that matched. Now the suits came later because we were we weren't playing festivals or anything like that. We were just we were just playing bar gigs. But we we you know so we would wear uh, you know blue jeans, matching shirts. Anyway, uh, so we go to counts and we'd buy shirts that match, wear blue jeans, cowboy boots, uh, string ties, and hats. And then and then when we started playing festivals, we started to think, well, maybe we ought to step it up a notch, you know. So we would go to a store together, and we would, you know, we'd buy these matching suits, and the stores were happy because they were selling five of the same suits at the same time. And, right. and so we did that. We did that for probably about eight years, where we would we would you know pick out something that, that was reasonably close, and and then at, at some point, like in probably the late '80s, it it came down to you know blue blazers and tan pants and go buy it wherever you can find it that fits. And so it, it we we kept the we kind of kept the, the the sort of aesthetic of it but it it be, became less rigid as time moved on mm-hmm. all right so at this point let's talk about how the band is evolving with the members because the, the, you've had a okay. lot of different members in the band we have we have i i guess the first the first major change was uh i uh, eddie Desmira and I had played music together for a long time, and he was growing a little disinterested. And and so I thought, oh my God, okay, this is like I this is the first time I had to make a real personnel shift. And we already recorded our first album from Rounder with Eddie, and so I called David. I think I probably called his mom Nancy first, and I said I would love to have David come back in the band. And that at that by that time Eddie was the was the fiddler, and David mm-hmm. had left the fiddle position. And I knew Dave played mandolin because we'd met and and played music in the parking lot a couple of times, and he had that sort of Monroe kind of feel to his mandolin playing that that seemed like that would really fit what we did. And so I I begged and pleaded with David and David's mom about him coming home after he finished up the semester, and and he did. And so he came back to play mandolin, and that band stood for a long time was me and Richard Underwood. I, oh, I didn't tell you how I met Richard. And so we were playing with uh, this guy that was my roommate, Franny Davidson, who was a drywall contractor, and, and he he was tired a lot. And he just said, you know, I can't work night and day. So Richard came to uh, this place that we were playing called, um, oh, Katie, geez, O'Brien's Pit Barbecue in College oh Park on Ralph yeah. Lund. And they yep. had an open mic there, and 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 we were playing there one night, and Richard came in with Buzz Busby because they were gonna they were gonna do a set too, and Richard when I heard Richard play in that sort of Stanley esque style, I mean he had his own twist on it, but he kind of played that style, and I thought, well, that sounds like that would fit. So I approached Richard, and after a little cajoling, he. He agreed to, to come into the banjo spot. So that's that was the band for a long time. It was me and Eddie. David had come back and gone on the mandolin. And Larry Robbins is someone who I met through uh, through Eddie. He came in to play bass, and that was the band for a number of years. And we did you know quite a few records together. And Larry got tired of the road. He was just just a tad older than us. 
And so that's when I contacted Marshall Wilburn, who I met through a group called Whetstone Run that were based out of uh, Pennsylvania. And yeah. he, had just take, he had just taken a job with Jimmy Martin. And, and I know Jimmy goes, I knew that Jimmy went through musicians pretty fast. So, I, so Marshall came in to do fill-in work, and I guess Jimmy might have gotten mad about that. And, and so Jimmy found a new bass player, and Marshall became our bass player. And then Richard decided to take a straight day job and and um, let's see, I can't remember. I think he was like, in, you know, he was the only one of us that had a college degree. So he ended up trying to, you know, get into the and make some money, you know, be frank about it. And um, and and Tom Adams was a guy that Marshall knew. And Tom was living in Nashville and he was playing with Jimmy Martin also. And he also came, uh, Tom also came highly recommended by a fellow named Chris Warner, who did my, mm-hmm. my guitar work at the time. And, and he was living in Nashville, working with Jimmy, and also delivering and managing a pizza shop. So I called Tom, and Tom came up. It was, I tell you, uh, Tom Adams' story is sort of, sort of uh, it, it, it amuses me now. Tom came up, and Tom's a Scruggs-style player, a Jimmy Martin-style player, flathead banjo, you know, real straight, straight-ahead driving right hand. And he came up with an arch top and, and could play just exactly like Richard. And we played some songs, and I said, well, that's, that's great. I said, hey, I said, hey, hey Tom, why don't, why don't you approach it just like you would approach it? How, what, how do you think the banjo part should go? And he was kind of shocked because Jimmy Martin is known with being a real stickler to playing things exactly like the record, you know, play it like J.D., Mm -hmm. play it like Paul Williams. And we weren't really looking for that. We wanted Tom to add his own personality to that style. And when Marshall and Tom, Eddie, David, and I started actually developing, it, it was like this, it was a transitional sound. And, and, and it kind of opened the doors for us for material and things like that because, and I don't mean this with any disrespect to anybody that had come before or after, but it enabled us to sort of spread our wings a little bit. And that was, the, that was kind of the last of the classic kind of Johnson Mountain Boys bands. Lynn Morris later you know, started playing with Marshall, and when we started playing some dates in the early 90s, Marshall couldn't make the dates that he couldn't make because Lynn had something. So uh, Earl Yeager became our, our last full-time bass player. And he was well, let me. We, we like those Jimmy Martin alumni because they thought time. And one thing the JMB always thought about was time and drive. And mm-hmm. so that was that was lots of fun to find. Okay, there's two Jimmy Martin, three Jimmy Martin ex players: Marshall, Tom, and then Earl. But uh, oh. it was it was you know it was a lot of fun, and those guys were so easy to lock in with. You mentioned two things, and uh, I have talked with Sam Bush because he's also being the New Grass Revival is going into the Hall of Fame, and of right. all the bands that I know that are great great bands and recognized as such they want they don't want to sound like anyone else they want to have their own sound 
and right. they're starting to write their own material. And you mentioned those two things, and that you said that was the transitional part for you. Yeah, for you the know, band. I, it, you know, when when we first started back in the back in the late seventies and early eighties, Katie, we were basically a Stanley Brothers, Flat and Scruggs, Bill Monroe cover band, and, mm-hmm. and it was and it was and it was great because it got us gigs. But when we started recording, we all thought, well. No, we're not gonna we're not gonna out Stanley Brothers to Stanleys. We're not gonna out Bill Monroe Monroe and and so so on and so forth. So we started writing, and we also started look. Well, I started writing, and David and Eddie also wrote, and Richard wrote a couple of tunes, but but uh, it became sort of the goal to write at least half the record ourselves. And then to look for, we started looking for obscure places for uh, material that people hadn't heard. And so we started mining the 1950s country music world, the Webb Pierce, the Ray Price, the Johnny and Jacks, and we recorded songs like, you know, Wasted Words and Don't Throw Your Life Away and a whole bunch of these songs from those, from those groups, and they fit just right. Because if you think about it, bluegrass and country music back in those days, it wasn't but a stone's throw between the two of them because they were very right. similar. The only thing that was really different was the harmony and the instruments and the instrumentation. And so that that became a good place for us to go for material. And like Sam said, you know, that's the thing. Is to, is, and I would say this to any bluegrass band that's getting started, don't try to sound like somebody else. It's kind of hard to do that when you're just learning. But as you start to become established and you start to get out on the road, you really got to find a way to come up with your own sound because you're not going to out Terry Balkum, Terry Balkum. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's, it's nope. just you've got to find your own lick. So at this point, who's doing the bookings? I mean, do you have management or... Who's beating the bushes for the jobs? We, we did. We had, uh, through the better part of our career, we worked with a fellow from uh, Hendersonville, Tennessee, just outside of just outside of Nashville, named Lance Leroy. And mm-hmm. Lance had been associated with Flattened Scruggs and the Bluegrass Cardinals. And so we went to Lance, and initially he turned me down. And then we went. We were playing at a place in Houston, Texas, called Rockefellers, and and Lance came out where, there with the Cardinals, and I think we may have been the opening act. And and Lance reconsidered and said, "Yeah, I'll, I." He said, "I think I could book you guys," and he did. And so, for, for the better part of our career, we were we were. I, I wouldn't really call. Yeah, maybe it's management. It was, but it was more of a booking situation. He kept, okay. us, he kept us on the road. We used to make fun of him, and I can say this now that he's passed on, but it's like we imagine Lance was booking us with a, with a big map of the United States and a, and a, and a, and a, a bunch of pins or darts that he would just throw at the map because we played North Carolina one day and Little Rock, Arkansas the next. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we were, we were young and, and enthusiastic, and we were just – you know, it's funny, you know, none of us had, well, David had traveled a lot, but Eddie and I and, and hadn't really been out of Montgomery County much. So, you know, this was all so new and so fresh, and we just could not wait to get 
in our motor home or our van or later on a bus and and go to these far flung places like Missouri, you know. And because it's just it's you know, we'd never we'd never been there before. And it was right. it was we were just like kids in the candy store and we took everything. I mean, we went to we went to Florida for three days for nine hundred dollars. I mean, we couldn't even hardly pay for our hotel, but by God, we played Florida, and you know, it was just that 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 kind of thing. And then later, that became probably probably the demise of the band is that we just got, as we got older, that the, the the appeal to traveling like that overnight lost some of its luster. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it ended up ended up kind of tearing the tearing the, the group apart. I mean, we like each other. I mean, there's no hard feelings, but the the, the search to make a, a the, make a living and living in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is one of the most affluent counties in the country, probably. You know, we had to just stay on the road practically to make a mortgage payment. And by that right. time. We got married, started having kids, had mortgages and and car payments and you know and all that kind of stuff. It just got to be a little bit too much. Well, let's talk about that energy and the hustle that you all would you know rush onto the stage and and start the music as you were entering the stage. I mean, it was exciting to see the band. Well, you know what? I'd like to claim credit for that, but but I can't. We actually got that, Eddie and I especially, well, no, David, David too, were big collectors of, like, live shows, live tapes, mm-hmm. Latin Scruggs and Stanley's and Bill Monroe and people like that. And and the thing that, one of the things that we really liked about it, I can I can still, still hear Ray Davis's voice from, from New River Red saying, now welcome Flat, Lester Flat Earl Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys. And as Boys was fading off and he was stepping away from the microphone, you could hear Paul Warren fiddling up to the mic, coming up to the microphone and getting louder and louder. I thought, well, there's an entry. (laughs) There's there's an entrance for you. And we started to kind of emulate that. And uh, and it became uh, part of our trademark. No sound check, no nothing. Just go up there and hope they get it right. And and sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't, but that was a that was a chance that we took. It worked because the and the other thing is, you know, Washington at that time we had the country gentleman, we had the seldom mm-hmm. scene, both very smooth and contemporary. It was almost whiplash uh, with the Johnson Mountain Boys. It was a yeah, real throwback. It, it's funny that you mentioned the country gentleman. I remember one time sitting in the audience waiting for the country gentleman to come on. And and uh, they were, you know, check one, two, check, 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 everybody checking their mics to make sure that the monitors were set correctly and all that. And and uh, Bill Yates, you know, got stepped up to the microphone. He looked over at Charlie and said, Johnson Mountain Boys have already played seven songs by now. And I know it sort of, it always kind of tickled me because we, we didn't do that. We just We just got out there and hoped for the best. But we played our hearts out. I mean, we played... We played to the very best of our ability. I don't think I can't remember a time when anybody in that band ever phoned it in. It was all it was all out all the time. Mm-hmm. And the reaction of the crowd, of course, was great. I I still get chills watching the old uh, at the Luckett Schoolhouse tape that you did. That was a show that you did for Weta Television, correct? Yes. 
Yeah, and and that was that was a really. I am so glad that that's captured. Uh, you know, it was meant. It's 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 it, one time. It was meant to be a companion to the record that came out. But I'm glad that it's out there now on 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 YouTube, because that mm-hmm. was a that was a very that was a very professionally shot show. The guy, what's his name? Oh, I you'll love this. His name was Jack Frost. That's his yes, name. yes, I, I know Jack. Do you? Oh, oh yes, so Jack did. Uh, Jack did a lot of the music stuff for WETA. In fact, I yeah. think he did a lot of the, you know, uh, Capital Force and things like that. If it was music related, Jack was the uh, director producer. Well, well, he was the, he was the director for our, for that show at Luckett, and I mean, he came in with knowledge and he really, really cared. And so mm-hmm. he was the producer for that show, and it was like a, a three-camera shot, and they really, they really did it upright. And there was so much electricity in the room that night, you know, knowing that, you know, this had been – we played around a lot locally, Katie, as, as you well know. I mean, if, if – and this was Eddie's specialty – is, you know, we would work on the weekends at, at festivals, but Eddie said, you know what, every one of these firemen's carnivals and all these, all these little towns in Frederick County and Adams County and all, all around, they all have carnivals that they use to raise money. So uh, a leg up that we had back in the, in the 80s was that we could play all week long at these little carnivals. I mean, they didn't pay a whole lot. But but what are you going to do? It, you know, you're we're just sitting home waiting for the weekend to come. So we started playing all these little carnivals all over the place. So we had a real good local presence. And I think every one of them showed up at Luckett's that night in February of 1988. And, and so there was, a, there, was a, there was a lot of electricity and energy in the air that, that we were going to be no more. And at the time... You know, when we walked off stage for that final number, none of us had we we'd kind of burn out, and and none of us had ever figured we'd ever play music again. And then we got uh, coaxed into it in the '90s by uh, Ron Thomason, who wanted us to come mm-hmm. up to uh, to I, I guess it was called Winterhawk at the time, I, but I'm not totally sure of that. It's a great box yes. now, I think. It's been what? How many years? Almost forty years since those days. Yeah. Uh, as much as I hate to say it, yeah, I have to get my calculator out to be totally sure, but yeah, probably something like that. <laughs> and and the influence down through the years, uh, do you see it or hear it when you're at festivals, uh, walk by I the do. camp? Yeah. Yeah, I do, and 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 I have I have these long, young musicians approach me frequently, you know, when on when we're on the road with the scene which it seems like that's been a lifetime ago now. I guess, you know, this has been the year where everything is just the 2020 is the year that wasn't. But uh, yes, I do. I have young people approach me. They can, they can play circles around me, but they, they really, we meant something to them and we represented something that inspired them to play. And you know what? You can't ask for more than that. I mean to have a have, you know to to have a little bit of a legacy going on and to to have that kind of influence over younger younger musicians. Well, that's the greatest gift a musician could ever ask for. Mm-hmm. I never I never well, you know 
I mean, I'm, I have to make a living just like the next guy, but I never got into the music business to make a, li- to, to, to make a bunch of money. I got into it because I could not get into it. I just like to play. And I like playing in front of people, and I like, I like the, the sort of instant gratification that you get from playing live and playing a song and then have people applaud. You know, I mean, who gets to do that? I mean, that's a, that's a, real, that's a really special guest. I mean, if you walk into your cubicle at work and everybody stood up and applauded, you'd feel great. And I suggested everybody. I suggested if we ever go back to work, everybody do that. I think that would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I think is nice is that uh, this is the first year because the rules have changed a bit uh, that a whole band uh, will be honored for their contributions. Uh, uh, you know, for the sound. You know how great also for the Washington area to have. Such wonderful music talent that you know they're being entered into the Hall of Fame, and uh, I mean, it really makes me feel like I spent my youth well. You did, Katie. I, 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 I was there. I, I saw you spending your youth well. So it makes me proud as a Washingtonian to see the music that you know I grew up with around here, at least musically. Uh, that it's really being recognized internationally now and makes me very proud of all of you. Well, you know what, Katie, that is so kind of you to say, and thank you very much. And I would like to turn the compliment, the, the, that compliment on its head and say that if it wasn't for people like you and Gary Henderson and Dick Spotswood and a handful of other people, we wouldn't have had the same influences that we had because of you guys and Lee Michael too. You know, we listened to, you know, I think I've told you this story before, but back in the days when I was just learning to play, uh, Ron Welch and I would would get together after dinner and we would play music until ten, about a quarter till 10. And you had the, you and Gary had that, the bluegrass show from 10 till midnight. And those were my formative years, and and we get a, we get some beer, and we. <laughs> I know this sounds terrible now in 2020, but it, it was a different time. So we get some beer, and we would go to school by listening to you guys. So your influence was just as powerful as 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 hopefully ours has been in sharing this. Well, thank you so much. Especially would like to like to you know thank. My parents, Dave McLaughlin's parents, Eddie Stubbs' parents, because they, they, they come to every show. They never miss a show. Mm-hmm. And, right. And, of course, and, and of course our, our kids and wives that put up with us being gone all the time. And how about people who brought materials to you, people like Walt Saunders? and? Oh, yeah, Walt Saunders, Dick Spotswood. I mean, the, the, the list is really endless to the people that have influenced us and also clip their wings. You know, if they said, I don't think that really fits you guys. And, and the, the, the criticism was welcome too, but it's just been, it's just been an amazing ride. And, 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 and that's what it feels like. I, I, a lot of times it's like it, we were so wrapped up in what we were doing at the time that I didn't even think about, that we whether we were you know making some kind of mark in the history of bluegrass right that was the furthest thing from my mind the only thing we were trying to do was play the best music we could and 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 keep the car on the road you know (laughs) 
and um, and there are a lot there are a lot of people that were you know Mike Courtney I think is another guy that was he was our bus driver and our and would sell stuff and you know there's just been so many people over the years that had a real hand and and you know keeping that band on the road as long as they were. Well, it makes you forget those days that you had to shave with the ice water out of the cooler with the baloney floating around in it. Uh, I remember. Okay, you did, Katie, okay, okay. There's a few things that uh, that I just as soon forget. That that's one of them <laughs> right there. I don't remember that like it was yesterday. We played. I, I forget where we played out in Oklahoma or something. At Hugo, Oklahoma, there's a big festival out there, and we had to play a gospel set. I think in Wingap, Pennsylvania. We pulled into the festival with like five minutes before we were supposed to start this gospel show, and we're shaving over this cooler with the, with the ice water and the baloney floating around. It was not okay. Anybody that thinks that, that traveling in a bus is luxurious, uh, talk to me sometime. <laughs> I've got some <laughs> stories for you. <laughs> well, but you see, you all were, were you know you were willing to put in those hard times and those hard miles yeah. to. To get where you are today, this just didn't show up, you know, without any heart, blood, sweat, and tears on your part. No, and never thought a thing about it. It's okay. Mm. So here we are. Let's shake. Okay, put on those suits and go out there and you know, give her hell, give it all you got. And that's you know, I think that's why we're uh, honored and fortunate enough to be in, uh, inducted in the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. I'm very proud of that. Well. Uh, on behalf of, of your fans and the bluegrass community, let me thank you for that dedication and thank you for all that music. It was a really important part of our lives. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katie. You've been an important part of ours, too. And that was Johnson Mountain Boys co-founder Dudley Cannell and Katie Daly. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud. Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, katydaily.com, and now Amazon Podcasts. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Mm-hmm.